Optophobia, the fear of opening one's eyes. This podcast is dedicated to encouraging you, our listeners, to move beyond that fear, to solve riddles they don't want us to unriddle, to investigate supposedly ironclad truths, to unearth evidence buried for so long they believed it would stay buried. Season 1 A Cold War-era military base in the Horn of Africa called Cagnew Station. For years, there was an official story about a U.S. intelligence project at Cagnew, codenamed Stonehouse. The project included a pair of 15-story parabolic antennas that the American government claimed was simply part of a powerful radio communications operation. But as the space race with the Soviet Union intensified, that cover story looked increasingly flimsy. By the 1970s, civil war forced the U.S. from Ethiopia, and Cagnew Station closed for good. Or did it? What was Stonehouse, really? What happened at Cagnew Station between 1974 and 1991 when violence and war gave perfect cover to any shadowy agency, organization, or cabal seeking it? This season on Optophobia, we'll track down the distortions, the assumptions, the omissions. Are you bored by the lies? Open your eyes. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, William Rawls. Today on Optophobia, we're going to lively up ourselves. Our guest has a fascinating connection to the late, great Bob Marley, and that brings an entirely new perspective to what may have been going on at Cagney Station and what exactly the Stonehouse antennas were being used for. But first, some news about my own Cagney research. In recent weeks, We've talked about how the Army Security Agency was using Stonehouse antennas to steal Soviet space telemetry during the Cold War. But the U.S. Navy was also experimenting with the ionosphere. It was using Stonehouse to turn the ionosphere itself into a powerful mammoth antenna that could transmit radio signals underwater, allowing nuclear subs in the Indian Ocean to remain submerged, hidden from the Soviet Navy. But it turned out that by heating up the ionosphere, the Navy was changing it, and the radio signals received by the SLBM program submarines included mutated electrons that may have caused SPDD, or Sudden Psychotic Delusional Disorder, in 23 sailors in the Indian Ocean fleet in the mid-1960s. Last week, I played you a short recording I found in the National Archives of what one of those mutated signals sounded like. So this week, I received the rest of the results from my Freedom of Information Act request. You'll remember that I was trying to find out specifically what happened to those sailors. In a 1968 memo to Admiral Thomas Hinman Moore, Chief of Naval Operations at the time, the commander of the Office of Naval Intelligence reported that each of the 23 sailors afflicted with the SPDD had a different but related reaction. Each of these 23 sailors many serving on different submarines, suddenly believed themselves to be lumbering, dinosaur-sized creatures, which seems to have made all of them very claustrophobic in the submarines. 
The document cites instances in which the sailors thought they were knocking things over, apologizing to their crewmates for crushing them underfoot, and constantly asking the cook to serve ferns. So, pretty dramatic. I've asked the Navy if they have any comment, and we'll report back on its response next week. But this week, I'm here with my regular co-host, Hassan Gray. Hassan, how's it going? It's going good. How are you doing? Pretty good. What's going on with the podcast? Last last time uh, we talked, you had some new sponsors. Yeah, I got season assist from Heinz and from um, Lisa Mattress. I mean, if if the real question you're asking is, did I get any more followers, any more listeners from my podcast, the answer is no. So you're still at five? Still at five. And um, we actually did an episode recently on uh, the Not My Problem podcast about the fact that I should have gotten more listeners off of those from the ads from the ads like i mean i don't understand how you don't like no one out there wants ketchup seasoning no one likes lease a mattress where you can lease out a mattress and then return it like you can a car when ketchup seasoning seems like something that would be very useful because if if only because it's not as messy no it's not it's the same color and if you if you get water on it it looks a lot like ketchup but it as its own it's so unmessy and like you can control it much better than tapping that actual tomato ketchup outside it's like you can just sprinkle on something next thing you know oh i'm not embarrassed anymore that everyone else has finished their meal and they're ready for ice cream now i've caught up to everyone else ketchup seasoning and there i go again saying the probably get another letter are these actually like is that a real thing have you tasted it or was that just a an idea that you had for a product i've tasted it it's real yeah it's a real product it's not that good does it taste like ketchup no and um tastes like cumin yeah it tastes like cumin which Cumin is a spice that you can't just put on anything. So, I would put that on French fries, maybe. Okay, well, to each their own. But then, if you do get it wet, it does like bubble up and look like ketchup. It's so fascinating. Well, uh, as always, if you're new to the Cagnew story and want some background, go all the way back to our first episode, or go to our website optophobia.org for more context. Unfortunately, our scheduled guest for this week, Grimy Mathers couldn't make it. Grimy is a cartographer in Crump, Tennessee. And according to a police report, she was arrested last week and charged with cutting historic maps out of books that are part of the University of Tennessee Knoxville's James and Rebecca Brindletop Maps Collection. Hmm. She was using a razor blade, again, according to the police report, to cut the maps out of the books, and then she was stashing them inside regular books that she checked out of the library. Mm, kind of turning the regular books into a bit of a topography map with the layers. But the weird, the weird part of it is that the pages that Grimy was stealing were of all of maps from around her, like her home, her, like home. her neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she told police that she just couldn't make Waze uh, work on her phone. Well, so then what? The police didn't believe her? I mean, I, I would assume that she said, look, I have I have it, but I don't know how to. Yeah, I, I believe her. I believe she couldn't get ways to work. I can't get ways to work. But she needed to know how to get to places. around. Yeah. So, she... so the government makes a need. Someone finds a solution and we arrest that person. Yeah, she went to prison oh, okay. or at least to jail. Yeah. But uh, we were very fortunate because we were able to book uh, an amazing guest. Convoy Jack Lafarge is visiting the studio from his home in San Francisco. Jack, welcome to Optophobia. 
Hey, man. Am I saying your last name right? Lafarge? Lafarge, man, yeah. Now, how do you want to be addressed? Is it Convoy Jack? Convoy Jack's fine. Convoy Jack, okay. Well, tell us a little about yourself, maybe where you're from originally, and uh, about life on the road. That must be exciting. Yeah, yeah, man. I grew up pretty pretty humdrum, suburban kind of life outside Dearborn, Michigan, you know, but it was a, a class field trip, Model United Nations. You guys oh, ever yeah. get into that one? Yeah, I uh, I did Model UN in South Carolina where we had to actually um, make a 3D model rendering of the UN building. Oh, so this was a model. You actually created yeah. a model of the Yeah, UN. Model UN. Far out, man. Well, mine mine was just more like a class trip to San Francisco, man. So I I, I jumped at the chance, and and so there I was, there at uh, Pier Thirty Nine. I was like eating one of those pretzels when these guys came up and wearing white lab coats, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Sir, come with us." And I'm like, "Okay," because back then, this must have been about. 63, 1963, 64. And you were in high school? Yeah, man. And they said, are you 18? I lied. I said, yes. I was only 15. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I was like tall, man. So You could pass for 18. I could pass. Mm-hmm. And they said, here, eat this. Mm-hmm. And I, I did. And you ate it. I ate it. And then they said, there, you've been given LSD. So we're going to go away for a while and lock you in this room. And just examine you, man. And what, when they said eat this, what were they giving you? It's just like a little postage stamp, you know. Okay. Kind of had some swirly design on it. When I'm handed things and someone says eat it, I go through like a little checklist. I'm like, does this look like food? I, I don't think it smelled like much, man. But there I was fully dosed with LSD locked in a room and... I later learned what I was involved in was a series of experiments funded by the CIA, man, Mm. to try to see if drugs like LSD and later psilocybin and mescaline and peyote, all of which they gave me, could be used in in mind control, man. When did you find all that out? Because it seems like maybe at the time you were just kind of There was a brochure in the room, man. Oh, so you were locked in and they had the information on the pamphlet as well. Yeah, man. And life was never the same after that. When this experience was over and you came down off the the drugs, did you stay in San Francisco? Did you go home? What, how did you react? First I said, you know, is there any kind of payment for my trouble? And they said, sure, here, here's a briefcase containing all the primo stuff you could possibly want. Here's all the extra tabs and and whatnot. So I'm, I'm like, thanks. And yeah, I just immediately moved into uh, one of those old Victorian houses on Haight Street, and I just kind of just kind of did my thing and let the 60s take its course, man. Yeah, so, I mean, I was next-door neighbors to the Grateful Dead. You know, we had a real neighborly kind of, can I borrow a cup of sugar kind of relationship? The Grateful Dead. So these are dead people or are they just very nice old no, it's people? it's a band, man. Oh, it's Jerry. a band. Okay. Then before I knew it, I was on tour with them, you know, helping them out. That's when my roadie career got started, you know. Let's take a, a quick break and we'll come back with Convoy Jack to talk about his roadie days. We'll be right back. 
Hey, optophobes. Have you ever lost your company in a game of Pinochle? Well, that's what happened to Mr. Gizzard Charlemagne, founder of Blend Venom Solutions, LLC. Regular optophobia listeners will remember that several weeks ago, Mr. Charlemagne heard our ad for his product, Spikenard Monocled Cobra Solve, while listening to our show at a Florida elder care facility, the Polyps at Jonathan Winters. That prompted a flurry of legal threats, and we were forced to accept a weird ad last week for Roman helmets. Well, luckily, those days of shilling for Vespasians are behind us, because Mrs. Jackie O'Shurd, the new owner of Blend Venom Solutions, is a big fan of our show, and has bought out Optophobia's mid-roll ad placement for the rest of Season 1. Mrs. O'Shurd tells me that her big win over Mr. Charlemagne came during an eight-player double-deck game of Pinochle with both cutthroat and racehorse modifications. Congratulations to her and also to Spikenard monocled Cobra Solve lovers everywhere. Gird for the burn, indeed. Okay, we're back with our guest today, Convoy Jack Lafarge, who was just starting to tell us about how he first became involved with the music scene in San Francisco and became first a roadie with with the Grateful Dead. Yeah, man. I mean, I went everywhere with the dead, you know, plus Jefferson Airplane. You know, name a San Francisco band, Santana. I was there on the road with those guys, you know. You must have a lot of stories from those psychedelic rock and roll. Oh, yeah. You know, like Santana, really afraid of spiders, you know, so... When he would get into his hotel room and there'd be spiders, man, he'd get freaked out. And uh, Gray Slick, Gray Slick's allergic to nuts, man. So, like, when, like, backstage, when the when the snacks contain nuts, I was like, Grace, stay away, man. Wow. You know, epic stories like that was what music was like back then, man. So your epic stories right now are one guy's afraid of spiders. Another guy backstage had a nut allergy. And Elton John had foot fungus, man. <laughs> I mean. That's, again, personal. That's a personal. So did you have to go to the pharmacy and grab something, for, like, as a roadie? Yeah. Yeah, I, I had to do all that kind of gopher stuff, man. But it was worth it to be part of rock and roll, man. I mean. So how did, when, when uh, the 60s changed into the 70s, uh, did roadie life change with it? How did you eventually hook up with the Whalers? I like that question, man, because really you got to think that's when rock became rock with a capital R, man. It's all about the money. Tours got bigger and bigger, man. I mean, I blew through London. I happened to f- catch Bob and the Whalers. And I'm like, that's my that's my stuff right there. That's my... That's my music. That's the music of my people. Man. And so the Whalers hired you because you'd had this extensive experience as a roadie and they were, were they on? That's when I started being called Convoy Jack because that's when I started driving the bus. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. They call it Convoy Jack. You're leading, leading the convoy yeah. to the next town, man. Oh, that's what we did, man. We we. Tore through great swaths of continents, man, to play shows in really far off, removed places, man. Did you ever um, you you were, you were playing Africa? That's the thing, man. Of course, we played in Africa, man. Yeah, you ever hear of that tour Babylon by bus? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there was a whole Africa leg. Late, this is late 70s. This is like 79. And he said he wanted to tour the whole African continent, man. And But where he really wanted to go was Ethiopia, man. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So the crazy stories that you had earlier from your time with all those bands, w- were there similar crazy stories with, with the Whalers when you were driving them around Africa? Well, sure, man. I mean, Bob, he really wanted to see a zebra, you know? Mm-hmm. So there I, there I am just driving around. I didn't know where I was going, man. Yeah. But Bob was like, Convoy Jack, you know, ear me now, man. Me, me tinks. He, he had a weird way of talking. Yeah, yeah. I, me tinks. I seen a zebra mm-hmm. over there. And I'm like, okay, man, you're the boss. And uh, before I know it, we're in the middle of the savanna. And yeah, we're surrounded by zebras and and hippopotamuses. And uh, yes, yeah, like a safari, man. Yeah, those. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but zebras and hippos are known to surround you. Once you're in their area, they're very territorial. So like hippos and zebras, gazelle will do it as well. And a wildebeest will, but they frighten easier. Yeah, it's dangerous, you know. And I'm like, Bob, get back, get back in the bus, man. Well, he must have been excited that you had found him what he was looking for. Yeah, I mean, Bob, he's like, Convoy Jack, hear me now. Mon, I and I is overjoyed. Uh, at finding this little zebra horse, Mon, you know? Stunning words, yeah. Isn't it true uh, while you were in Africa looking for the zebras, some poachers approached you and shot Bob Marley? Yeah, man. Uh, I think they were like dentists from Minnesota, man, coming to hunt big game. They shot Bob right in the chest, but he played that Nairobi Fillmore show that night. Anyway, man, that's the kind of performer he was, you know? Yeah. He got shot in the chest. And then he played that night in Nairobi. That's crazy. Yeah. It must have been pretty amazing to be in Ethiopia with the most famous Rastafarian on earth. That was the mecca of the trip, man, you know, was to get to Ethiopia, the home of Emperor Haile Selassie. You know, the figurehead of the whole Rastafari movement, man. Bob couldn't get arrested for nothing in Ethiopia, man. Those people adored him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that show at the Addis Ababa Amphitheater was was filled to the gills, man. I mean, they couldn't get enough. Encore after encore, man, you know. But then when the show was done, Bob's like, get back in the bus, I'm like, where are we going, Bob? This is the end of the tour. And he's like, I heard there's this recording studio that's that's a few a few uh, hours away. This place, Cagnu. Mm-hmm. He's like, I want to record there, man. Convoy Jack, man. I and I think I know the way to get there, man. When Bar Marley said tink, was he saying think? He was saying think, man. Okay, because sometimes so I'm getting I'm getting it confused as well. Because sometimes he hits the T hard, and sometimes he just hits it regular. Because sometimes he's like, I and I be thinking about it, and then other times he's like, me go over there. That's good. That's almost as good as my impression, man. Bob really wanted to get to Cagnew Station to record there, 
Do you, any, you have any idea why? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Do you guys know Bob Marley's music a little bit? I know one song. Wh- which one? Um, well, it starts out. It's a... Is that punky reggae party? Um, I'm not sure. Whichever one where he's like, let's get together and feel all uh, that's that's three little birds man but there's this other song he did called one punky night. punky reggae party what's that one where he he name checked a bunch of different punk bands like the clash and uh, the jam man so no but what he was after recording at cag new station man was like a sequel to that you know he wanted to do like a synth pop reggae party synth pop he wanted to invite like all these like synth pop musicians to come down to cagney station and record you know he's like convoy jack i and i want culture club to come ricard call boy george for me so i did i got boy george down to ethiopia you know because this was the, almost the 80s, right? You said 79? Yeah, right when these kind of bands were taken off, man. Bob was real taken by their sound. So like Kajagoogoo? Kajagoogoo, No, man. it's pronounced Kagnu. Nah, the group, Kajagoogoo. Oh, the group. Oh, okay, I'm the sorry. The Human League, man. Aha, Tears for Fears. Flock of Seagulls. A flock of Seagulls, man. Thompson Twins. Well, we got all of them down to Kagnu Station to record, man. It was like a... Frickin' new wave synth pop supergroup, man. It was amazing, man. I mean, uh, we barely had enough outlets for everyone's synths. <laughs> oh, everybody was in, was recording on, at the same time. Yeah, um, yeah. I had to run a lot of extension cords, man. Yeah. But, but it was really exciting, you know. Bob was real into that uh, synthesizer sound. Not many people know that. A synthesizer make me feel re- iry. Yeah, man, he kind of sounded like yeah, something like that. Like that. So this was just just for next his next album. No, man, he wanted to like keep this track hidden, man. He wanted to record it and then not release it. I think that's what he said, man. But he, you know, he died in about 1983, and so he's not around to exactly ask him anymore. How did he die, by the way? He had cancer, man. He had what? He had cancer, man. Oh, you said it weird the first time. I was sure. Well, I was trying to remember, man. But he he wanted the the track buried because, man, he told me, Convoy Jack, you know, I and I think there that you can broadcast music from this station, man, and it can it can play all around the world and make the people feel irie, yeah. man. He had a way of punctuating his speech with saying things like man a lot. His brother um, does the same thing, but he's a little more progressive. He says woman. Who? Bob Marley's brother. Who's his brother, man? Rob Marley. Oh, Rob Marley. Cool, man. Does he have a tour? <laughs> I could use another job, man. Bob Marley had a brother named Rob Marley? Yeah. They're both named Robert? Bob Marley's real full name is Bobbert. You know, I think that's true, man, because I like, I would do a lot of the passport immigration stuff, man. I'm like, here he is, Bobbert Marley. So Mrs. Marley, were they twins? Yeah. So she had twins and she said, I'm going to name my children Bobbert and Robert. Yeah. 
Convoy Jack, what sounds like an amazing record was actually recorded at Cagnew Station with all of these legendary 80s synth pop bands that Marley then conducted into some kind of reggae version of synth pop. Using nothing but synths and drum machines, man. And his instruction to you, or his wish, it sounds like, was that the Stonehouse antennas would be used to disseminate that music. But then that never happened, and then he got sick, and then that that recording is just lost? Well, totally, man. I've never heard that track myself. I can only just sort of close my mind and maybe take a bit of DMT or a couple tabs of of the acid. I still got... A whole bunch from the Stanford experiment, by the way, man. Um, I can kind of close my eyes and remember, like, the glory of 15 different synthesizers all playing the same progression over a killer Bob Marley vocal. That's, But that's just in my head. The greater world has not heard this recording, man. That sounds about right for Cagney. Yeah, I mean, things disappeared from there all the time. Mm -hmm. This was obviously during the dark period. Quote-unquote. Quote-unquote dark period. It would be fascinating if that recording ever showed up. Me tinks it's out there. I want to thank our guest this week, Convoy Jack Lafarge. Thank you for coming into the studio to do this. I appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Thanks, yeah, I'm man. super happy you came, Cagnew Jack. Thank you to my co-host this week, Hassan Gray. He's the host of the podcast, Not My Problem. Find it wherever you... Literally anywhere you could possibly listen to a podcast. Come on, guys. We got to up his Yeah, I just need... If base. one more person listens to it, I consider that a success. Yeah. I mean, we've mentioned it so many times. I can't believe you don't have one more listener. What's a podcast? Man. That's what you're on right now. Huh? You probably don't know. Uh, your eyes have been closed this whole time. Where am I, man? You're in a podcast studio. You were you were great. Okay. <laughs> oh, there's a pamphlet. <laughs> Far out. Next week, we'll talk to Phil Ribbles, a floral designer from Owl's Head, Maine. Phil hosts a podcast called Who the Fuck Are You? Phil has been talking for years about developing an adult water park at Cagnew Station, using the Stonehouse antennas as part of a giant bar and water slide. Uh, And I guess recently when he was researching the licenses that he needs in order to develop Cagnew, he discovered a document that suggested the land the U.S. government leased from Ethiopia in the 1950s to build Cagnew and Stonehouse uh, was not actually owned at the time by Ethiopia. Instead, these hundreds of acres that the U.S. was on top of for so long had actually been purchased by Walt Disney right before he had his nervous breakdown in 1931. And Phil is obviously pissed because that puts a crimp in his water park plans, uh, which he's talked a lot about on his podcast. So it'll be interesting to get his perspective. Thank you for listening to Optophobia. I'm William Rawls, and I'll leave you with this. Life's scars are no different than the scars one receives when attacked by a polecat. If you've got theories about what was really going on at Cagnew Station, we'd like to hear them. You can find us on our website, optophobia.org, or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at optophobes. 
And please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you to Luke Hennig, who played Convoy Jack Lafarge. Luke performs with The Lodge, a legendary Washington, D.C. improv team. Jamal Newman played Hassan Gray. Jamal performs with Lena Dunham and Nixon. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at at Hello Newman and find him at jamalnewman.com. Optophobia was produced by Tim Townsend. Music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Cover art by Claire Smalley. Website by Chance Griffin. Thanks for listening. Until next week, keep them open.